Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. There's so much going on in Latin America. In Cuba, days of dissent with chants of liberty and freedom sweeping through the streets of Havana and other cities. It can be confusing. El Salvador's President Nayib Bekele announced plans to build the first ever Bitcoin city. That's where El Hilo, a Spanish-language podcast from Radio Ambulante Studios and Vice News, comes in. Cuando un edificio se cae, no perdona. Cuando tú vives en una dictadura, ¿qué opciones tienes si eres oposición? O la cárcel o el exilio. Listen to El Hilo every Friday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Even once the results are in, Georgia will continue to stay in the national spotlight as the balance of power in the Senate could be left to Georgia voters to decide. We know both Georgia Senate races are headed to runoffs. So all eyes on Georgia, right? In the wake of the November 2020 election, people who follow politics were obsessively refreshing returns from the usual places. Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Then a new state came onto the radar. Georgia, a state that hadn't gone to the Democrats since 1992. The race in Georgia was tightening. And this was thanks to the historic turnout of young, Black, Latino, and Asian American voters, as grassroots organizers across the state had registered over 800,000 new people in the run-up to the election. In the end, Biden won the state by just over 12,000 votes. The story could have ended there and it would have been historic. But it turns out organizers were just getting started. Both Georgia Senate seats were up for contention in 2020. And as the tide began to turn in Georgia, it became clear that not only were both of those races headed for a runoff in January, but flipping the Senate and with it Democrats gaining control of Congress hung in the balance. So the question became... Could Georgia do it again? People say to me, you gotta be crazy. How can you sing in times like these? Don't you read the news? Don't you know the score? How can you sing when so many others grieve? By way of a reply, I say a fool such as I, who sees his song as somewhere to begin. I'm Anat Shankar Osorio, and this is Words to Win By. Runoff elections are tricky. They usually generate little interest, get scant media attention. They happen at odd times. It's challenging to make sure people actually show up. In general, they're a hard sell for would-be progressive voters in particular. Not surprisingly, Democrats have historically struggled in runoffs. Nevertheless, the same grassroots organizations mobilizing in Georgia, especially in Black, Latino, and Asian American communities that had just busted their asses to deliver in the presidential, 
got no break and stayed right at work, this time with an even steeper hill to climb. Here's Ensei Ufad, the CEO of the New Georgia Project, one of the organizations critical to mobilizing Georgia voters. There was a lot happening at the runoff. Truly, I I feel like this phrasing is often like overused. We really were drinking from the fire hose. I tell people that within the first 72 hours of Georgia being called for President Biden and Vice President Harris, we received up to 10,000 requests to volunteer. People weren't expecting or anticipating a runoff and certainly not to. I 100% was preparing and expecting two runoffs. So what did that mean? It meant that we were leaning into best practices, the tried and true tactics that we know 100% work to move people to action. We're knocking on doors. We've got this massive phone bank, this massive text bank, the high quality digital ads that were competing, if not better than anything that was out in the market at the time. But we were also seeking to innovate. It's hard to overstate just how impressive the achievements of the New Georgia Project and allies such as Fair Fight Action, Asian American Action Fund, and Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights proved in this election. Increasing voter turnout is one of the most persistently challenging elements of progressive politics in the United States. Vote is a verb. It's an action people take more than a belief that they hold. What research shows is that voting is a habit. Getting people to vote is much more like inducing them to floss than persuading them that something is true. People are aware we should floss. They know how to do it. They own or they can go get the materials needed. But yet, truth time, most people don't floss. And so too with voting, where we find that most interventions, no matter how ingenious or well-executed, produce null effects. Nevertheless, as Georgia and the massive surge in voting in both 2018 and 2020 show, there are things that do make a difference. And in U.S. politics, where we can win or lose races with less than 1% margins, even seemingly small gains yield huge payoffs. When thinking about any mass mobilizing effort, it's important to understand exactly who we're trying to turn out. You often hear these folks referred to as non-voters, but words mean things and shape people's realities. These so-called non-voters are actually pre-voters. They're people we just haven't reached yet. Indeed, because of the power of social proof and the centrality of self-identity and influencing action, referring to these folks as non-voters or by equally discouraging names like infrequent voters reinforces the exact behavior we're trying to change. So when I think about mobilization of never-before-voted likely-dem folks, I call them high-potential voters. There's also a lot of assumptions that these people are simply self-interested, not collectively oriented, or don't care. Or that the way to reach them is by hounding them that their identity group doesn't participate. None of that's true. To get to the heart of what we know works on mobilization, I want to introduce you to my friend and frequent collaborator, Maya Bordeaux. Maya co-founded Frameshift, which specializes in persuasion marketing. One of the critical things we learned is that our prevailing opinion of infrequent voters 
is simply not true. People believe that infrequent voters are, you know, they're lazy or they're apathetic. They don't have a strong opinion or, you know, they're confused. They're they're poorly educated about politics, etc. And all of these end up being somewhat pejorative terms for people who are different than us. They're different than us because we, as part of the politically involved group, we believe that not being involved uh, reflects badly on somebody. And what we learned is that, no, it's about people who have, in fact, you could even argue, see the reality for what it is, which is that the left has failed to make meaningful change in their lives. And so therefore, why would they invest time and energy in a process that doesn't have real dividends when they themselves have so much that they're struggling with in their daily lives that really requires their full attention? As part of a broad project we did exploring voter mobilization, Frameshift found two psychographic archetypes of high-potential voters, a.k.a. not-yet-mobilized folks. The first we named peace seekers. And this is somebody who is exhausted by the current political infighting, is turned off and feels like it's not constructive, so why should I even enter into this fray or care? Because the people are not working together and we're not able to get things done. So, you know, to me, that seems like a perfectly rational choice, right? You know, you see two dogs fighting. Are you like, oh, yes, I'm going to get involved in that? You know, like, no, they're just going to run away because they might bite you. <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're basically focused on their families, the quality of the life of their families, trying to have a better life. They prefer harmony and people to work together towards common goals, and they try to find areas in their life where they're able to achieve that. The second archetype are the cynics. They are people who almost... You know, it feels like they had some kind of trauma around expecting government help and then felt betrayed by not receiving it. So in other words, you know, for me, when I first entered the movement, I had this very idealistic view. All I have to do is convince people to elect Democrats and then the Democrats will manage to make these policies and then the policies will help people. Well, it turns out as we talk to these high potential voters who are more cynical, you know, I, I was discouraged to hear that they did not do not feel helped by government. <laughs> you know, they they tried to call government and somebody uh, put them in a phone tree. They tried to get help, but the program was maxed out. They didn't get any help. They couldn't understand the language on the forms and it felt elitist and if they felt stupid or they were shamed, like, you know, how dare you ask for a handout? What's wrong with you? So those people, you know, might have voted for Obama. They might have voted at some point for a Democrat promise help, and they never got it. So as a result, they're betrayed, they're cynical, and they've opted out of the system. And that is a choice. It is not that they're apathetic. They're making a choice to focus on something, other things in their lives that will actually improve their lives. So when you respect these two groups and you understand them and you say, you know what? I get how they got there. That's the key to designing messaging that can truly resonate with them. Unsurprisingly, the peace seeker and cynic are motivated by different things. So you have to tailor your messaging to address each group's concerns. Here's Maya on what motivates peace seekers. So peace seekers are very much motivated by everyday examples of making change and impact because that's what they're looking for. They're looking for people to work together, you know, do good things for each other. They're focused on their families. So one ad that we work together on 
you know, that ad was all about the identity of being a voter and linking it to the everyday ways that peace seekers are leaders in their lives. In this ad, the words you are appear as we see a man leading kids and then the label a leader finishes the phrase. Then a woman gardens alongside a child in the words a helper. A couple holds a baby and we see a lover. The identity labels continue alongside short clips of ordinary activities. The everyday gives way to the historic with Rosa Parks near the words a rider and John Lewis next to a fighter. This culminates with a woman affixing the I voted sticker to her chest as the ending words, this year, be a voter, close out the ad. And that that was incredibly motivating to this segment because they don't feel super empowered. They don't feel like they can make a difference. And they're also intimidated by the level of conflict that they see in politics. So by making them feel like you are a leader and a, a change maker in your everyday life. These things matter. And in the same way, you can be that by voting. Studies have shown that asking people to be a voter is more effective than asking them to vote. And as far as motivating cynics... So cynics get turned on by defiance. <laughs> they're, they're pissed off. Because, you know, they've been betrayed. Underneath it all is a lot of hurt, right? Underneath it is hurt that I, I haven't gotten helped and they didn't make good on their promises. So another ad that we both worked on together, showing a rhino blocking the road and causing a huge traffic jam. In this ad, the rhino Maya mentioned blocking the road is labeled Republicans. Behind him, vehicles pile up, furiously honking in the hopes of motivating him to get out of the way. A label pops up for each vehicle. Healthcare, COVID relief, lower drug prices, faster and faster, more labels, one per car. The screen goes black. And we see, take the problem by the horns. Vote. With a rhino grunt implying the jam has been cleared. So this empathizes with the cynic's view that things are not working. Their promises were not delivered, but instead it gives something to blame for that. And the reality is, yes, the rhinos are Republicans who are stopping that change. And by, you know, ending it with seize the bull by the horns, you know, go and vote, that defiant tone gets them going. They're like, yes, you know, I'm going to get rid of that blockage. And these guys, they really get how the system is stuck. In fact, we aired these two ads and a host of others based on these and other core principles of mobilization across the Midwest in 2020. And they proved in actual field testing based on voter file returns to boost turnout by meaningful margins in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Pennsylvania. But arguably, the real test was applying this framework in Georgia, where new voters had just come back from the polls and were now expected to return for a runoff. For this, Frameshift did Georgia-specific research that led to a messaging strategy that appealed to both peace seekers and cynics. Portraying Senate candidates John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock as the new guard. And so what's a positive story that we could tell in Georgia that would appeal and mobilize high potential voters and our base? Well, it turns out the most successful message of the ones we tested was the idea of Warnock and Ossoff being the new guard, you know, versus the old guard. 
They're a fresh, dynamic duo, young, you know, multiracial from different religions. And they're here to make history again. Just like Georgia made history in the 2020 election, the, the new guard and the dynamic duo was a metaphor that suggested they're working together, you know, that they're, they're aligned, they're ready, they're combining their strong force together to accomplish something that's greater than the sum of their parts. And this new guard moniker also works because it rang true. Both candidates had the credentials to back up this claim. New Georgia Project pulled from their personal stories to help demonstrate how Ossoff and Warnock really did represent a new path forward for Georgia. Here's Ense. I think that for Ossoff, 33-year-old Jewish kid from the North Atlanta suburbs, sending him to the United States Senate at a time where the majority of the Senate was born before there were 50 states really resonated with our folks. And for Warnock, it wasn't only the fact that he was running to be the first Black senator from the state. He was a reminder of another barrier-breaking legacy. He had movement receipts that he was literally only the third person to command Martin Luther King's pulpit since America killed him. America killed Martin Luther King. Like now he's Disney-fied or whatever. But at one point, he was considered the most dangerous man in America. And that's because he fought for us and he loved us. And he had a vision for an America where we really could work together to build the communities that our family deserves. And Warnock is not only his moral successor, but he's also the like, keeper of his legacy and his sort of nonviolent, multiracial, multi-ethnic America of the future that was featured in Martin Luther King's dream. Mobilization is a very hard job, and so too is persuasion. As I've mentioned before on this show, voters don't just hear our side and form their opinions accordingly. We have to preemptively contend with our opponent's message. And changing someone's mind or altering their impression of you is no small task. But it turns out there are sudden openings, what Maya calls persuasion windows, when someone is more likely to change their perspective. And if you can hit folks with effective messaging in those windows, research shows you are more likely to persuade them. An obvious example was at the onset of COVID, where ads about healthcare were suddenly testing much better than the exact same content a month earlier. Another is the holidays, where ads about family or togetherness do better than at other times of the year. But as you can imagine, those windows are pretty hard to predict or simply manufacture. Luckily, there's a trick that works. Well, a big part of Persuasion Window is surprise. You're like, whoa, that surprised me. And humor is all about the surprise. There's the turn where it's like, whoa, that was not what I expected, but that's really funny. And so you surprise them and they're much more open. They're much more positive about you because you made them laugh and feel good, that they're much more likely to listen to what you have to say. Humor plays a big role in a lot of the most successful ads that we create and test. What humor does is it disarms the listener. It doesn't telegraph to them, you're about to watch a political ad, which is about as appealing to apolitical people as hearing your partner say, we need to talk. Humor helps people let down their guard, and then the content can actually make it through. 
The other thing it does is it lets the viewer be in on the joke. There's a payoff to getting the punchline. It's far more persuasive to have someone come to a conclusion rather than hammer them over the head with it and tell them, you need to think this way. Indeed, the Warnock campaign deployed just this trick precisely to get ahead of the attacks from his opponent in an ad that went viral. Raphael Warnock eats pizza with a fork and knife. Raphael Warnock once stepped on a crack in the sidewalk. Raphael Warnock even hates puppies. Get ready, Georgia. The negative ads are coming. Kelly Leffler doesn't want to talk about why she's for getting rid of health care in the middle of a pandemic. So she's going to try and scare you with lies about me. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this message because I'm staying focused on what Washington could do for you. And by the way, I love puppies. What that Warnock ad does so well is it preemptively takes the sting out of the attacks against him. It casts criticism as a series of absurd allegations, while also unconsciously contending with the racialized tropes Loeffler was relying on in her attempts to make Warnock seem dangerous and threatening to law and order. It ascribes motivation to Loeffler's attacks, juxtaposing her failures with his promise and focusing attention on what matters, the people of Georgia. And that focus on the voters is important. Here's Maya on why. So we did a meta-study at one point looking at what's kind of more effective, having ads that are focused on what voters care about versus ads that focus on the candidate, their bio, etc. And what we found overall was that ads that focus on voters were far more effective than candidates. And that was consistent as well in the Georgia work we did, where the idea that this dynamic duo is fighting for justice and change for you versus, you know, these candidates have such and such bio, which makes them so much less corrupt than the Lofflers of the world who own all this stock and are doing insider trading. You know, that was less effective than just focusing on the dreams that voters have and bringing those to life. In the lead up to the runoff, the new Georgia project targeted their approach directly at empowering voters. So specifically thinking about the runoff, it was you have to vote again, right? That our job is not done yet. That we need to give Biden-Harris a governing trifecta if they want any chance of getting anything done. And that was really effective. And then the second one was Mitch better have my money. The idea that Mitch McConnell as majority leader was the stumbling block that was getting in the way of most of Americans getting access to this emergency financial relief really struck a nerve with people. And so we were saying, if you want this check in your mailbox sometime in January, we have to elect Asaf and Warnock. And that seemed to work as well. Mitch Better Have My Money places agency in and gives power to the voters. They, not the candidates, are the protagonists in the frame, with Mitch as the foil. Plus, the baked-in pop culture reference makes it easily spreadable. This approach, along with the broader first message and say highlighted, powerfully cast the voter in the leading role. They were responsible for this moment that we're in now, right? That it was them that made Georgia competitive. It was them that brought us to this moment. And it was them that moved Black voters and young voters and Southern voters to the center of the American political universe. And so 
you got us to this moment. You need to finish the job. And so it reinforces the power message that their vote actually does matter. And it was powerful. Our work is not finished yet. The job is not done yet. We need you to come back out one more time to give Biden and Harris the tools that they need to pass their agenda. The phrase, our work is not finished yet, does another key thing. Like Obama's use of yes, we can, it messages from inevitability, which is when you present your proposition not as a matter of if, but when. When you assume the person is going to take the desired action instead of allowing for the possibility they might not, you make it more likely they actually will. Again here, you're placing agency with the voter. The New Georgia Project also met voters in their own spaces and through their own interests, especially young voters. They released limited edition custom sneakers emblazoned with the phrase, protest to the polls. They spoke with guidance counselors and parents about engaging first-time voters in the process. They expanded to new platforms, encouraging Gen Z gamers to discuss their reasons for voting. And so then we got on Twitch, right, which is this, you know, video platform, streaming platform for people who are into games. It's like YouTube for gamers. And so we started hosting Twitch the Vote events where we would bring esports players and like really popular gaming influencers who were like 17, these 17-year-old millionaires. Like while they're super popular and they have millions of followers, they are also first-time voters. One reliable standard in the work of mobilization is social pressure. Old school social pressure is a postcard that would come to your house with the words, who you vote for is private, but whether or not you vote is a matter of public record. And believe it or not, this big brother seeming thing actually works to a statistically significant degree. People who receive mailers like that and are made aware that other folks can know whether or not you voted are actually more likely to vote. Maya, her colleagues and I took on this concept and modernized it making sure to take away the judgment and encourage people to vote. Social pressure is definitely an oldie but a goodie. You know, it's like, it's tried and true, it does work, but it can backfire. And with high potential voters, it can backfire if you make them feel like they're being judged for choosing to not vote. So whenever we have ads that could be perceived as judgmental or where people would raise their barriers, a really good trick is to use humor. So combining humor and social pressure lifts some of that, the weight of judgment, and just makes it kind of more of a teasing, you know. It's like we had one of, you know, Will Smith kind of looking a little sad, and it's like, when you find out your crush isn't a voter, you know, and it's, it's like cute. It's like, oh, you know, you don't feel as judged. It takes some of the pressure off. Regardless of whether it was through sneakers or memes or Twitch conversations, Georgia organizers empowered their voters. In doing so, they also managed to stay away from a major communications pitfall common among progressives throughout the Trump presidency that continues to this day. Fear-based messaging. Fear-based messaging might be super motivational because it's burning hot, it's intense, right? It makes people want to get up and do something. But when I think about the work of the New Georgia Project, like we, again, use elections as an opportunity to test our power and to flex our power. But it's about power and building power for the long term. 
It's about the power to stop bad things from happening, but also the power to build the communities and the state and the country that our families deserve to live in. And there, we can't sustain that over the long term to build the country that we want to build, that we in fact tend to focus on love and power as themes, like the love that we have for ourselves and our families and our communities. Not only is fear-based messaging not aligned with New Georgia Project's ethos and approach, it also just doesn't work. It doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't work. Because it's demoralizing. You know, it's that really tricky... It's sort of a general point about negative versus positive advertising is that it can be demoralizing. And I think the biggest mistake a marketer or a political persuader can make is to tell people what they're worried about. <laughs> That's People don't want to know what keeps you up at night. They want you to address what keeps them up at night. And what's keeping us up at night is Latinos aren't voting for Democrats. So that shouldn't be what we tell Latinos. <laughs> That's not very persuasive. There's another version of the story in which everyone in Georgia panics and starts yelling, Trump, ah, aren't you afraid? They're trying to rig the election. Since Trump did represent such a credible threat, since he was so much of what keeps us up at night, it would have been easy to fall down this rabbit hole yet again. There's so much interest in it because that's how we feel. You know, there's so much interest in it because we want to get that off our plate and tell the whole world what we're afraid of. But once again, that's talking about what keeps us up at night. It's not talking about what keeps our voters up at night. You know, Clinton actually ran a more negative campaign than Trump. So if you analyze the ads, almost all of Clinton's ads were anti-Trump. If you analyze Trump, yes, you know, there's a lot of focus on his fear-mongering being successful, and certainly it was. But on the other hand, he also made a very strong positive promise. His campaign slogan was Make America Great Again. That's a positive promise. He was like, you're going to win so much, you will, you'll get tired of winning. We're going to have amazing health care. Like the guy was addressing what, people, what was keeping people up at night, which was that, you know, they're not going to be able to pay their bills, that society is moving away from them, they're being left behind. So he promised them, we're going to go back to the dream you had of what you used to have. In truth, not all of our messaging can or needs to be positive. There is a role for negative emotion. But the one that is activating is anger. That's the defiance that makes cynics want to go to the polls. Fear, in contrast, is an inhibiting emotion. And our reliance on this kind of messaging comes out of fundraising. It's one of the many asymmetries between the left and the right. What engages left-wing activists, people who are already into politics and might compel them to give $27 or to tweet or to like or to share, is actually quite different to what motivates people who are ideologically aligned with us, but not yet politically engaged. On the right, activists and the ideological base are actually more in alignment. What motivates one group does a pretty good job with the other. On the left, fear-based messaging invokes a fight-or-freeze response. For activists, it certainly inspires a desire to fight. But those are the people already doing what we need. In most other people, it makes them want to go into their own little cave and just walk out the world, especially when everything is so difficult. 
Activists assume that what works on us ought to work on everyone else, especially people who share our ideology, but aren't participating yet. But that just doesn't hold true. Fear-based messaging doesn't grow the choir. Which is exactly why the New Guard, a message that evoked bravery, was so successful in Georgia. The kind of story of the New Guard, dynamic duo, going to change Georgia, move us towards justice, that was way more powerful than contrasting them against, you know, the negative. So, for example, you know, you could have said they're a bulwark against Trump, you know, and like focusing on Purdue and Loeffler being corrupt versus they're going to give back to you. What we found was that those types of portrayals were much less effective than simply defining what they were going to do for voters. They remind or make them feel like they lack agency versus giving agency. You know, you did, you accomplished this. You have agency. And that's exactly what ignites high potential voters because they believe if they have agency, then their vote matters. Today is also a huge day in Georgia. It is election day and the stakes are high with control of the U.S. Senate in the balance. The two races have shattered records for early votes cast and campaign dollars spent. On January 5th, 2020, Georgians headed to the polls. In the time between the presidential and the runoff election, an additional 70,000 voters registered in the state. Thanks again to tireless organizing. This was largely made up of young people who were able to vote for the first time. Over 4.4 million people voted, doubling the number of Georgians who voted in a 2008 runoff. 60% of eligible voters turned out, a higher percentage than the 2016 presidential election. And roughly 90% of voters who had turned out in November showed up at the polls in January. And this made all the difference. Raphael Warnock won his special election against Kelly Leffler by a two-point margin. John Ossoff unseated David Perdue by just over one point. Despite this historic achievement, there was little time for a victory lap. It was called for Warnock very early on, the night of the 5th. And then I'm doing the morning show circuits on the 6th. I'm like taking our victory lap. I'm preparing to talk my shit (laughs) and I'm super excited on behalf of young people, on behalf of people of color. I told you that if you invested in black led organizations, I told you if you invested in indigenous leadership, I told you that if you invested in a year round culture of organizing that use elections as an opportunity to test the power that we're building and to flex the power that we're building, that we would yield results. Literally, they called for Ossoff like late morning and it was like, yes, this is a thing that is happening. Organizing gets the goods. I told y'all. And then literally like 30 minutes later in the middle of a podcast interview, it was like, hey, are you seeing this? They're breaking into the United States Capitol. There's an armed mob that's looking for Pence and talking about murdering him and looking for Nancy Pelosi and talking about murdering her. What is happening? And then, yeah, thunder stolen. 
while the country's attention shifted to the Capitol insurrection and the white lash that we saw in response to Trump's false claims that the election was stolen. Building on the MAGA faction's big lie, the Georgia state legislature enacted new laws to decrease access to ballot drop boxes, reduce the time period to request an absentee ballot, and create voter ID restrictions. Not content just to block people's freedom to vote, they also created a new chair for the state election board, appointed by the Republican-led legislature that has the power to suspend local election administrators. Add to this the tendency for voters to swing away from incumbents in midterms, and the task before us in 2022 is daunting. Thus, it's all the more vital we consider the blueprint Georgia organizers have laid out for building an empowering movement to get folks to the polls. If we have any hope of winning, we're going to need to take these lessons and apply them to re-turnout getting our 2018 and 2020 voters back to the polls. I think of these absolutely critical and measurably more Dem-leaning folks as vital voters. Of course, we'll happily add brand new folks to our tally, but vital voters have already participated once or even twice and selected Democrats. As such, they are an easier group to mobilize and one whose conversion to political participation we can recreate by seeing what worked before not just speaking to, but organizing and empowering vital voters is key to holding on to progressive power, and with it, moving us closer to the inclusive, equitable democracy we seek. Once again, their work, and ours, is not done yet. Words to Win By is a Wonder Media Network production. The show is produced by Grace Lynch, Brittany Martinez, and Sundas Hassan Nuli. With editorial support from Ale Tejeda, Carmen Borca Carrillo, Liz Brown, Anthony Torres, and Jillian Marcellus. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Anat Shanker Osorio. Our theme music is written by T.R. Ritchie, produced and arranged by Dan Leone. If your words don't spread, they don't work, so please let others know and rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. A song is somewhere to begin To search for something worth believing in If changes are to come There are things that must be done And a song is somewhere to begin